Coming to you from the AT&T Podcast Studio, this is Long Story Short. I'm Ted Struley, the Executive Director at Oklahoma Watch. We're a statewide nonprofit news organization that specializes in investigative reporting. You're listening to our weekly podcast, which lets you hear directly from our journalists as they provide deeper insight into their recently published stories. Lionel Ramos covers race and equity for Oklahoma Watch. He's been keeping up with the closure of the Tallahena Veterans Center since that was announced by the state's Veterans Affairs Department back in June. Lionel comes to us today with a story uh, exploring how the decision affects state coffers and the veterans that are cared for there. Lionel, uh, why is the Tallahena Veterans Center closing? The... Interim director of the Oklahoma um, State Department or State Veterans Affairs Department, um, Greg Slavonic, said that the department is losing half a million dollars each month to keep it open. And so uh, what's the Department of Affairs spending that half million dollars on? Overhead costs. Uh, the building's nearly 100 years old. I think it was, if I remember right, it was built in uh, 1924. And labor costs and employee benefits. And then there's also an element of making up for a lack of federal dollars received as per diems for each veteran that lives there. Uh, the occupancy rate is very low, 14 to 175. Uh, and so you talked about the occupancy rate. Uh, to how many veterans are there? There are uh, 14 last time I spoke to, to Greg Slavonic, and that was August 10th. All right. What about staff? You know, um, in the operation of closing, there is what's called a reduction in force. Um, right now, there are about 66 state employees there and a little more than 20 contractual employees there. Um, that is compared to over 100 that they had when they made the announcement in June. All right. Now, we know the Veterans Affairs Department is building a new veteran center uh, in Salisaw that's uh, seen some pretty costly construction delays. How does that play into the decision to close the Tallahena Center? Right. The, you know, the original plan was to time the closure of the center in Tallahena with the opening of the center in Salisaw. Uh, like you said, there have been some construction delays, some pretty costly ones at that. Uh, so that made it not possible for, for that timing to happen. Um, you know, the bills for the Tallahena Center don't stop. You know, as long as that facility is staffed and caring for residents, they've got to keep it open. They've got to keep the, keep the lights on. They've got to pay for all the, all the medical care, um, the medication that they're receiving. So there is a balance to strike there between the need to save money from the State Veterans Affairs Department and ensuring that the veterans that live there are properly cared for. And does closing the Tallahena Center strike that balance? You know, both uh, Greg Slavonic, the interim director, and Sarah Brashears, the administrator for the Tallahena Center, characterize the closure as a business decision in the best interest of Oklahoma veterans and taxpayers. Slavonic said that if the center were to stay open until the Salisaw location was available, the state would have lost about $9.5 million by the time they actually expected to to open in Salisaw uh, no, next November or December. Uh, Brashears pointed out that as long as the department is losing that half a million dollars a month, it has to pull funds from other services across the Veterans Affairs Department that are provided to veterans uh, to make up for it. So it hurts, in their eyes, 
um, all veterans in Oklahoma, keeping that center open. What about the veterans who still live in Tallahassee? What do they think about having to move? You know, I spoke to two veterans while I was there, uh, the two that agreed to be interviewed, um, and they didn't want to go anywhere. And they said that when they were called into a meeting by the administration, Sarah Bashirs and some of the staff, um, and they heard about it, that almost nobody wanted to move. Some people were willing uh, because there isn't much of a choice. They have to go somewhere. Um, but I spoke to a gentleman named Jimmy Billings. He's a 80-plus-year-old Navy veteran um, who made them move akin to <laughs> deploying in the military. You know, he, he characterized it as as this sense of wanting to or needing to leave what he considers home and not exactly knowing when he's going to come back, if he's going to come back. And, and that's kind of where most of those gentlemen are, um, as far as I understand. Been there for a while and feel like they're leaving home at this point. Yes, sir. All right. Well, thanks, Lionel. Long Story Short is a weekly segment featuring discussion of uh, top stories from our Oklahoma Watch reporters. You can read all of Lionel's work about the closing of the Tallahina Veterans Center and his other work in the areas of diversity, equity, and inclusion on our website, oklahomawatch.org. Reporter Paul Monies has been tracking the huge pots of federal money for Oklahoma to expand broadband in uh, rural and underserved parts of the state. Paul, how much money does the state have to expand broadband coverage? Yeah, so the state uh, has more than $1.1 billion. Uh, this is from federal funds and a couple of programs. Uh, the first is the American Rescue Plan Act. And the second is another act called BEAD, which is a Broadband Equity uh, Act and Distribution. And so, yeah, it's, it's more than a billion dollars that we have to spend uh, coming from the feds. And so it's quite a lot of money coming through the state for this, this program. Well, who's in charge of approving the money for the projects? So, yeah, the legislature has set up what's called the Oklahoma Broadband Office, which has a couple of governing bodies over it. But essentially, they're the ones who are going to be dispersing this money uh, in the basis of uh, competitive grants or applications that have already been filled. Now, the broadband office has been a little slow to get off the ground, right? That's right. Yeah, there's been some kind of tension between the legislature and executive in terms of uh, getting this money out the door to the programs that's needed. And especially this is a case in broadband. Um, the office is staffing up. Uh, has gone from, you know, a couple of people to about uh, more than a dozen or so folks. Uh, and those are in charge of grant programs, as well as kind of uh, making sure all the, the programs are done legally and correctly. But it's also had a couple of stumbles along the way in terms of finding a director. Um, they had a, a short list. They had an interim director uh, to get a final director in there. And uh, the governor had kind of said that he preferred a candidate to come in at the last minute. And it was a former lawmaker who is now in charge of the office, uh, Mike Sanders. Now, some Internet service providers have questioned the plan for projects uh, funded through the coronavirus relief funds, right? That's right. Yeah, the legislature has designated about $382 million of the state's chunk of ARPA funding to go to broadband uh, upgrades and expansions. And those applications were actually done uh, a couple years ago when the, the state first opened its portal for funding under the ARPA program. And now at this point, as the broadband office is rolling out um, its application process, some of the providers have said, well, wait a minute, some of these applications are kind of covering our areas that we already provide service. And so the broadband office set up a process to kind of challenge those applications 
And that has kind of come to a head in the last couple of weeks in terms of people not being happy with that process. And it's very com- com- compressed time frame for challenging some of these projects. And now who's likely to get the money here? Who applied for uh, some of this funding under the American Rescue Plan Act? So it's a combination of existing large telecom companies, AT&T, uh, Cox is obviously out there too. Um, there's Dobson Communications. And of course, there's also um, some of the uh, smaller electric co-ops have started kind of broadband kind of arms to kind of uh, also put uh, project applications out there. And of course, there's some smaller telephone companies that are already in the markets that they serve for telephone who are also interested in the broadband side as well. Now, the broadband office just released a new map of coverage and speeds. Why is that important? Yeah, so they've been working on this for for a number of uh, months now. um, And the legislature actually said, this is the first thing you need to do is basically get an updated map. And the map's very important in broadband because essentially it will tell, um, you know, the, the grant providers where the coverage is right now, how fast those speeds are. But of course, the problem with maps is that sometimes they're out of date and not accurate. And in fact, the state's own map uh, is is the most up-to-date one. But the federal government also has its own broadband map for the state that it released last year. And that states to challenge parts of that. And so now there's kind of some confusion on which map to use. Uh, the federal funds actually have to use a federal map. So it's not even going to be the latest map that we're going to use for some of this uh, expansion. And, you know, Paul, maybe explain a little bit about why uh, broadband expansion uh, has been so challenging to get done and and why it matters. Yeah, I mean, the federal government has been trying to fund broadband expansion for more than 15 years now. Um, You know, going back to when technology first came on, on the scene a couple of decades ago, it's hard, especially in rural areas, to get to those last miles uh, the furthest out parts that don't have coverage right now, and a lot of them is la- they're laying new fiber along some of the, the old phone line routes. And so that obviously takes some time, expertise, manpower. Uh, so it's just a challenging thing. And if you look back to even the, the days when we were first electrifying the country more than a century ago, that was one of the challenges there was getting to the last few houses hooked up, last few businesses hooked up at the end of the lines. And so it's just a challenging thing, not to say it, it can't be done, but also there's, there's you know, Oklahoma is a fairly large state uh, and has a lot of places to go for some of this fiber too. Sure. Uh, you know, I'm reminded of uh, too when cable television was the thing, right? And we had to put in lines for cable TV and uh, providers were really challenged by uh, the justification of having one customer uh, at the end of a mile-long road that you had the uh, lay cable for, the return on that investment uh, was not very promising. That's right. Yeah, it's very different from urban and built-up areas where obviously you have more customers and more density for people, more p- opportunities for, for choice for customers. Um, a lot of these rural areas, there's one provider, and they kind of make the, the, the rates for, for that area as well. All right. Well, thanks, Paul. You can read all Paul's ongoing coverage of the efforts to expand broadband throughout Oklahoma on our website, oklahomawatch.org. I'm here today with Audience Development Director Sean Witt from Oklahoma Watch. Hello, everybody. Um, Sean, we're going to talk a little bit about a new product that Oklahoma Watch uh, launched about Oh, six weeks ago or so, a uh, newsletter that runs Monday through Friday called First Watch. Uh, tell us a little about it. Well, you uh, you put together First Watch uh, on a daily basis. It comprised of uh, 
generally something that we're covering at Oklahoma Watch. Um, and expands upon it a little bit. Not quite uh, a column, but you, you kind of give a little bit of facts behind it that may not be in the story necessarily. And then expand to why it probably would impact uh, you, the reader, uh, here in Oklahoma. And then a couple other nuggets about things that are going on uh, in the world around us that we're not necessarily covering at Oklahoma Watch, but some of our some of our friends and partners at uh, some of the other news outlets across the state. Um, and then, uh, and then uh, we put that out on a daily basis. Well, you know, part of the idea here was to uh, engage more with readers, right? Get, get, uh, some kind of contact with readers on a daily basis. We don't always have a new story to publish every day. So uh, the new newsletter fills that role to some extent. Uh, And it does, as you said, it's supposed to be a little bit deeper look, doesn't replace the story that's been published, but maybe adds a little bit of depth and context uh, and a story summary so that if it's a topic of interest to somebody, maybe they go read the story and have a little extra background and context to go with it, uh, along with uh, just a little roundup of two or three items going around, going on around the state that uh, maybe we think are worth taking a look at that other people have published. Yeah. What kind of feedback have you gotten from the audience so far? Uh, so far, it's it's all positive. Um, it's... Uh, you know, you, you start off and you you get a little bit of, of folks, well, you know, maybe it's a little too much on a daily basis, but that's that's not really been the case with this email. Um, it's uh, everybody's like, oh, wow, this is this is so cool. I never really thought about the story in that kind of aspect. It's kind of it's kind of nice to get a little bit of a different perspective on it. Actually, the the most fun I think people have had that that I've got are the photographs. You 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 select a photograph on a daily basis from a from a local photographer um, and to kind of help kind of showcase their work. So um, a lot of people have really commented, "Wow, this is a really cool photo. I've never seen this. I've never heard of this photographer before." Um, and so it kind of helps develop their following as well. Yeah, the photo uh, is just a standalone photo. It's not tied to the news story. It's not a news photo, just uh, might be a landscape, might be kids at the carnival, right? We never know from day to day what that's going to be. But uh, and so far, it's been kind of fun. We've been able to attract submissions from photographers uh, literally all over the state, all the way from uh, Woodward down to Hugo and points in between. That's been uh, kind of a fun part of this. Yeah, it is really cool. And and if, if you're a local photographer out there, please shoot us an email. You can email me, swit at oklahomawatch.org. Um, you know, I'll get you in, in touch with Ted and, and, you know, we may not use your submission that time, but you may have something that we could use later down the road. Uh, it's, 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 it's always nice to hear from people that we don't have a relationship with necessarily at this point, um, because that's the, that's part of the point of this is to help develop relationships with folks that we don't necessarily know at this time. And, you know, the, uh, newsletter is called first watch appears in the inbox every morning about five thirty quarter to six. And what would you say it is maybe a three minute read? Uh, at least, um, you know, it, it just really kind of depends on the subject matter. Three minute reads about about norm, um, but yeah, it's 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 nothing too heavy. It's 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 nothing that's gonna you're gonna have to sit there and and just toil over and come back and pick up later. You can read it in one shot. Um, and the nice part about it is, is you can sign up for it very easily. You can go to our website, uh, OklahomaWatch.org forward slash newsletters. Click the box there. If you're not a current subscriber to First Watch and you're subscribing to our other letters, newsletters, you can go and add that to your 
repertoire of Education Watch and Democracy Watch. So um, it's threefold. And, and if you're interested in sponsoring First Watch, you can always shoot me an email at swit at oklahomawatch.org. Sean, thanks so much for coming in. Uh, if you are interested in taking a look at the First Watch newsletter, as Sean said, oklahomawatch.org. Follow that newsletter tab, uh, put in an email address, and we can get you added to the list. You've been listening to Long Story Short, a weekly podcast that helps you get deeper into the investigative stories reported by Oklahoma Watch, which you can find on the web at oklahomawatch.org. This episode was recorded at the AT&T Podcast Studio. For Oklahoma Watch, I'm Ted Struley. Thanks for listening.